you know, looking at the United States, uh, as I mentioned, 2022 was a record-breaking year in many fronts. It was a record-breaking year in terms of the amount of renewable energy we produced and how much was used in the electricity sector. Welcome to the Green Hour, a community of innovators, activists, and government leaders in the world of sustainability. Each week, you will hear from a leader in sustainability to help unlock your mind to a greener future. Hey guys, I'm Preston Polk, and we are live in New York City at the Concordia Annual Summit with special guest Lisa Jacobson, president of the Business Council for Sustainable Energy. On this episode, we'll cover recent changes and developments in the energy sector over the last decade, including record-breaking years in renewable energy adoption and challenges like energy security and climate change. Shifting focus, we'll discuss the United States' progress in meeting its Paris Agreement commitments emphasizing the role of the power industry and addressing obstacles such as supply chain disruptions and rising interest rates. Finally, we'll delve into the significant private clean energy investments globally and in the United States, highlighting the growth of renewable generation and the urgency of accelerated decarbonization to avoid severe climate impacts. Join us as we navigate the intricate terrain of clean energy's evolution and the pressing need for decisive action. Whether you're a newcomer to environmental discussions or a seasoned participant, the name Paris Agreement likely rings familiar. Frequently mentioned, but perhaps not fully understood, this global accord established at COP21 in 2015 simplifies into a commitment by world leaders to limit the Earth's temperature rise. The primary objective is to stay well below a 2 degrees Celsius increase from pre-industrial levels, with a more ambitious aim of limiting it to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Crucial components of the agreement encompass regular global progress assessments, climate financing for developing nations, and a transparency framework ensuring accountability. Yet, despite these collective efforts, a recent United Nations climate body report reveals that nearly eight years since its signing, the world is falling short of the Paris Agreement's goal. With Earth's average temperature already 1.1 degrees Celsius higher than pre-industrial levels, urgent action is needed to bridge the gap between commitments and reality. As we grapple with the consequences of climate change, from droughts to melting ice caps, the report issues a sobering call for heightened ambition in implementation of existing commitments, emphasizing the imperative for a collective effort spanning all continents to turn the Paris Agreement from aspiration to reality. On a positive note, there is hope when strong leaders come together to find solutions. We're privileged to have one such leader joining us on the Green Hour today, Lisa Jacobson is the president of the Business Council for Sustainable Energy, a 65-member trade association representing the energy efficiency, natural gas, and renewable energy industries. Ms. Jacobson has over 20 years of experience advising federal and state policymakers on energy, tax, air quality, and climate change issues. 
She is a member of the United States Trade Representatives Trade and Environment Policy Advisory Committee, the Energy Efficiency Global Alliance Steering Committee, and the Gas Technology Institute's Public Interest Advisory Committee. Ms. Jacobson has testified before Congress and has represented energy industries before the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. The urgency is clear and the time for action is now. As we navigate the challenges outlined by the Paris Agreement, let's be inspired by today's conversation with Lisa Jacobson. It's a call to action for each of us, whether newcomer or seasoned participant, to contribute to a sustainable future. All right, welcome back to the Green Hour. Today we are joined by Lisa Jacobson, President of the Business Council for Sustainable Energy. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lisa. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. Yeah, so we're live here at Concordia at the annual summit in New York City. Um, So Lisa, can you start off by talking about what the Business Council for Sustainable Energy is in your role? Great, yes. The Business Council for Sustainable Energy is an energy trade association. So that means that we educate and we advocate mostly for policy, but but also for voluntary initiatives that will help speed the clean energy transition. We represent different companies and industry associations, anything from energy efficiency to combined heat and power to fuel cells to electric transportation um, to renewable natural gas renewable energy. I mean, we cover the whole gamut. But I think what makes our coalition a little different is that we represent technologies that are readily available and we're ready to deploy. And that's what we're here at Concordia to talk about. So if we're talking about, you mentioned clean energy and the clean energy landscape. The first segment I want to get into is really talking about the recent changes and developments in the clean energy sector over the last decade. Because, you know, as we know, there's been a lot of change and a lot of new technologies that have come. So could you start off by talking about, you know, these recent changes and developments in the clean energy sector? Yeah, I'd be happy to. And I also want to mention for your listeners, you know, we also are wondering what's happening as a coalition of industries. We know there's so much happening and transformation is happening in the energy sector and our economy at large. But we didn't have a good resource to put it all in one place. So over 10 years ago, we started what we call the Sustainable Energy in America Factbook Project, where we commission a a report each year that tracks uh, U.S. energy. In this case, we're mostly we have some data that is outside the United States, but mostly the U.S. energy landscape and looking at economics, technology deployment, um, other key metrics that we think are really critical to understand what's happening in our energy economy. We uh, commissioned this report from an analytic firm called Bloomberg New Energy Finance. And, uh, you know, really, it's a staggering, uh, amazing story in the last year of transformation. So we released the Sustainable Energy in America Factbook most recently in March of this year, and we'll release another one in March 2024. And it really brings data together that looks, you know, over the mid and long term, so certainly over the last decade, But um, we try to provide data that's almost real time. You know, what happened, for example, in 2022. So the theme for the 2023 fact book was that, you know, clean energy is hardwired into our economy. And we look at several metrics that really make that case. Number one is the use of clean and zero uh, carbon energy in our economy over the last 10 years. And it's, it's a dramatic change. Um, we also look at investment. 
We had a record-breaking year of investment in clean energy technologies in 2022, and I could list a number of stats where we were record-breaking. So electric vehicle sales, um, output of renewable energy, and use of renewable energy in our economy. Um, you know, we are making good progress in terms of deploying clean energy technologies and using more energy-efficient technologies, but we clearly have a long way to go. I mean, one metric that everybody here in the halls is looking at today is greenhouse gas emissions. So, you know, really, where are we when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions? We are about 14% below 2005 levels in terms of our economy-wide greenhouse gas emissions. If you look at the power sector, which is the second largest, largest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions in our country, we are 35% below 2005 levels. So this is a dramatic change, and it's because of energy efficiency. It's become because of deployment of renewable energy. It's because of switching for dirtier energy resources to cleaner energy resources like natural gas. Um, I know that people have questions about right. the role of natural gas, but it has contributed significantly to our greenhouse gas reductions to date. Clearly need to decarbonize more. But, you know, we've had a very large transformation in a sector that really doesn't change very much. You know, it hasn't changed very much in 60, 70 years. But in the last decade, it's changed a lot. You mentioned investment. And later on in, in our, our talk, we're going to talk about, you know, investment and growth in clean energy. You know, with policies such as the Inflation Reduction Act that have really brought uh, manufacturing back into the U.S. with clean energy, but I want to highlight the next thing I want to highlight is talking about, you know, talk about the good, the good things with renewable energy adoption, how we had a record-breaking year last year. But it's not all good. I mean, there, there's still some challenges that we're facing. So I'd want to hear your thoughts on really the challenges of energy security, climate change, and international competition, despite the progress that we made in the last year. Well, you mentioned the Inflation Reduction Act, and I think you know, as the months go by, because actually it's only been enacted, you know, just over a year ago, and it's a massive 10-year, um, we're going to use that word again, transformative policy. It tries to wrap a lot of those issues into one piece of legislation, which is, I mean, we kind of, it reveals itself time and time again as as we're moving forward in response to it as the private sector. But things like workforce, things like our uh, supply chain, uh, security, domestic manufacturing, um, things like critical minerals. I'm going to be on a panel later today talking about critical minerals and and just the, the need to modernize our infrastructure as a country. A lot of those elements came into this piece of legislation. One of the areas that we were most focused on as a coalition were tax incentives that would lower the cost and make it easier to deploy not just renewable energy, but renewable energy is a large part of it, but also sustainable transportation technologies, um, deep decarbonization technologies, things like hydrogen, um, energy storage, um, carbon capture utilization and storage. There's, I mean, I, I could go on. There are so many areas that this legislation is trying to incentivize, all targeted on strong economy, uh, domestic manufacturing, and jobs here for all of us to benefit from. So uh, there there's certainly a role for public-private partnership here, and I think the Inflation Reduction Act clearly was a historic move 
by the national government to support industry and communities that that want to move forward with the clean energy transition. But as you said, you know, that's a lot, right? We're asking for a lot of change very quickly. And so we need to modernize other laws now that we we realize, okay, well, we have the drive and the market signal to go further with the clean energy transition, but we still need to permit these projects. We still need a workforce that's there. Where are our supply chain um, uh, vulnerabilities? And, you know, and then we are also dealing with the challenges of climate change. I mean, every week, I mean, you know, we, we have the stories in our country and around the world of, you know, really tragic events that are harming people and communities. So we're, we're having to deal with this while we're trying to, to make big changes and really build out new infrastructure. You mentioned um, later today you're on a panel about critical minerals and really that whole conversation, tying it to international competition is a big conversation, right? When, when discussing China's you know, hold on the critical minerals market and how they, they have really, I guess you would say, controlled critical mining. As far as the U.S. producing and mining for critical minerals, what's your thoughts on that, of opening up the supply chain in the U.S. for um, rare earth mining or critical mining? Well, I, I, you know, at the highest level, we really have to. I mean, we're if, if we want to do it in an environmentally sound um, way that takes into account workers and also be able to have those resources so we can deploy much faster with sustainable transportation or the power sector, um, we're best doing that here in North America and in the United States. I think the biggest challenge is we haven't for many decades, and those were purposeful decisions at the time. And now we need to revisit that. And, you know, it's going to have local impacts. So we have to make sure, you know, where those resources are, the communities want to move forward. But I, I think we collectively, all of us need to, to kind of pivot in our minds, like, okay, we spent so much time focused on kind of being in the center of the agenda, getting the policy and market signals in place. Now we're at the point where we need to act, we need to move. And that might mean that we're doing things that we haven't done in a long time or have not done before. But we can't just rely on other countries. If, if we want to deploy at the scale that we expect to, then we need to have more of that um, critical mineral supply chain here in the United States or at, at least... Um, rethink how how we are getting it because i mean even everyone focuses on china and i'll, I'll pause on that but it, we don't want to rely on any one or two large suppliers if we want to deploy at scale we need to have more um redundancy we we need to have more control so that it needs to be rethought no matter what it is and i think thinking about it here in the u.s for at least part of the challenge is something that we should be considering yeah, I really like that word control because um, we mentioned China. There, there's other nations that we're outsourcing mining to, critical mining. But as the U.S., we really want to be able to control our resources and really control our, our output, control our emission levels. And if we're just importing this stuff from another place, we can't really control their practices mm -hmm. and what they're doing. So going from that and then kind of pivoting to um, some of some of the climate commitments that the U.S. has, I want to get into the Paris Agreement. Um, actually, on this podcast, we've never even talked about the Paris Agreement, so I'm okay. really excited to talk about. Um, I actually read an article, I think it came out a few days ago, in anticipation of COP28 
the United Nations released a report that found global action on climate change is not on track to meet net zero by 2050. So I, I want to hear your thoughts on the United States' progress towards meeting its Paris Agreement commitments. Obviously, 2050, I mean, we still have, what, uh, 27 years, uh, give or take 26 years. But, I mean, what are your thoughts on our progress for um, the Paris Agreement? Well, first of all, thank you for taking time to talk about the Paris Agreement. It really was, and I'll use the word again, a historic uh, progress in the Framework Convention on Climate Change, which started um, in the early 1990s after the Rio Earth Summit. There were four global environmental regimes that came out of it. One was climate. And, you know, the Paris Agreement is the culmination of 20 plus years of negotiation. And, and what's, I think, remarkable about it is it brought together um, developed economies that, like the United States that really are the largest, were the largest contributors to emissions to date, especially when that agreement was in place, and developing countries that are just still in many cases looking to develop and and have more modern infrastructure and, you know, how do, how do we help them develop but not have them repeat what we did with, you know, heavy uh, emissions along the way. But so that was like a huge issue, you know, how do, how do both developed countries and developing countries come together in a uh, constructive, forward-looking regime that looked at science and set targets? And so that's Paris Agreement did that. And why it was able to get agreement across all those different interests is because it said, let's look at the long-term goals, let's base them in science, let's look at some midterm goals, let's base those in science, but then every country come to the table with what you can deliver. And so the United States did that. So it's kind of bottom up and top down at the same time. And the United States said, you know, we're going to reduce our emissions uh, significantly on track um, with what the scientific community says we need to do to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. And, you know, we are are plotting along. Um, you know, we are not where we need to be by 2030. And that's why the Biden administration and many states and many cities and many companies have said, OK, well, we're going to we're going to revisit where we are now and set some very ambitious goals, both for the midterm and the long term. So we're like in the critical a decade right now to to pretty much double where we've been with greenhouse gas emissions. And then 2050 is is even more significant. So, you know, you know, we're looking at 80% emissions reductions uh, you know, net economy-wide by 2050. And we're we're not there. I already told I told you where we are, you know. Right. So, and it's all based on this 2005 timeline. So that's why it was so significant. So we're like 14% below um where we were in 2005, economy-wide, and as I said, the power sector is decarbonized a lot faster. It's 35% below 2005 emissions, but we have transportation, which is the largest source of emissions. We have industrial, we have buildings, we have commercial. We have a lot of work to do. So the Paris Agreement is very important because it puts a spotlight um, year after year on where we are. And this uh, COP that you mentioned, this Conference of the Parties meeting, which is a ministerial heads of state uh, meeting. It's going to be in Dubai in December for two weeks. Governments come together um, under the UN banner, and we're going to do a global stock take. We're going to say, where are we? This was enshrined in the Paris Agreement. It's kind of a report card. You know, how are we doing? It's not, as you said, it's not where we want to be. Um, we are recovering from the COVID pandemic and what that did to um business conditions and supply chain. So things are still a little erratic, right? 
Um, we have inflationary dynamics around the world. Um, we're trying very fast to to move our economies and and move forward with the energy transition, but we're also dealing with the impacts of climate change, which are very costly and disruptive and harming communities and people. So it's like a lot. There's a lot going on. But what I'm hearing um, from our industries is really okay. It's not about the technologies, even though we still need to to communicate what technologies are available, and there are many, and many are very cost effective. But it's really about speed. Like, how do we get alignment in, you know, all of these different areas so that we can deploy much faster, especially in the next decade? So we listened yesterday to a panel um, with former Colombian president, Avon Duque, and he was talking about how really if, you're, if you really want to move the needle with, with climate, um, climate action inside your country, it really starts from the top, like the president down and it's really telling that one of the first things the Biden administration did in 2021 was re-sign the Paris Agreement. So I just wanted to add that in there because I think the Biden administration as a whole, one thing that they've made a focal point of their administration is climate and climate action. Um, you can see that through policies that have passed, like the Inflation Reduction Act, the, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, uh, the Chips and Science Act, that all have funding to sustainability. I would agree wholeheartedly. Yeah, yeah. So, and I think— you know, in the in the complication of everything I just described that, you know, we're and in, in a very um, politicized environment on every issue, including sustainability issues and energy, um, you know, it's hard to cut through that. But I mean, the and we're a bipartisan organization. And I would say, too, that there are a, a number of very strong Republican leaders on climate, and we could talk about some of them in a minute. But the Biden administration deserves tremendous credit for delivering on the policies that send market signals. We've been asking for this as long as I've been working in this field. So kind of going back to something called the Kyoto Protocol, which was a predecessor to uh, the Paris Agreement. I mean, we wanted uh, supportive policies. And, you know, it's not just at the national level either. I mean, the last decade, we've had so many new policies at the city level, at the state level that are pointed towards, uh, you know, net zero science-based um, emissions reduction goals. So um, obviously, we're, we're talking about um, the Biden administration, but then we mentioned, you know, there, there's strong Republicans in this space, too. The next segment I want to get into is investment and growth in clean energy. So I'm from uh, the Atlanta, Georgia area. So I really want to touch on what Governor Kemp has done inside of our state as a Republican candidate, bringing in a lot of a lot of clean energy, cleaner energy manufacturing inside the state. Again, these policies like the IRA have allowed for these manufacturers to come inside of our state. And I think especially for Republican candidates, if it makes sense economically, then they're going to champion it. And that's what's happened in Georgia. I mean, you look at you look at Q-cells coming into our state, um, a Korean manufacturer bringing their first U.S.-based manufacturer inside of our state. Actually, this, where I grew up, Dalton, Georgia, that is where the first facility was oh, um, wow. for their manufacturing. Then you look at Hyundai bringing an electric vehicle manufacturing inside Georgia, then Rivian as well. Mm -hmm. And then you look at Plant Vogel in Georgia that just went live um, very recently, um, I think units three and four. So you're you're going to uh, be the front lines of the energy transition, which is really exciting. So, you know, 
you know, we're here we are in New York City and New York likes right. to to say it's in the top. Well, it certainly is in the top five of leading states, but Georgia's going to like break through. You're going to top them all. But yeah. yeah. And also the the jobs and investment you're going to get from that as and it's just going to continue to attract uh, more investment and more research and development. I mean, it, it's amazing. I, you know, and again, I think this should not be a partisan issue. This is good for communities um, on the economic side, it's good for our energy security, and it's good for our competitiveness, as you said. I mean, we have an opportunity to play in the the clean energy race, and you know, a lot of these technologies that we want to use were developed here in the United States. We should be market leaders in deploying them. So yesterday, we talked to Yosef Abramowitz um, about solar. Um, he brought the solar industry to Israel. And now he's doing work in Africa to do the same thing, bring bring solar, um, I think, to 10 African countries, I, I think is what it was. But on that topic of solar, the next question I want to ask you is talking about the growth of renewable generation, not just solar, but with wind and hydropower production as well. Could you talk about in the U.S. really the growth of renewable generation and where you see this going, um, let's say 2030, let's say 2050? But just your thoughts on renewable generation. Right. Well, great, great topic. Um, first, I would say, you know, I, we look at renewable energy in the power sector, right? Just what, what we started to talk about. And I'll go into a little bit more deeply. But we also look at it in um, transportation fuels and building technologies. So there's opportunities uh, outside the power sector for renewable energy. And, and maybe we'll get a chance to talk about that. But let's just talk about electricity for a moment. Um you know, there's utility scale renewables, and then there's distributed generation. And I actually got into this field because I had friends that were working in Nepal on solar projects, and they were going to communities and and helping communities use solar, um, solar for schools, solar for charging their phones or whatever else their needs were. You know, they they had um, you know energy access issues in rural communities. And this would be an opportunity to, in, in, their, in this case, augment their hydropower resources, another renewable energy resource. But, you know, looking at the United States, uh, as I mentioned, 2022 was a record-breaking year in many fronts. It was a record-breaking year in terms of the amount of renewable energy we produced and how much was used in the electricity sector. So we kind of broke through. We had been hovering around 19 or 20 percent of our electricity mix being from renewable energy. And in 2022, it, it topped that somewhere in the 22, 23 percent range. And that includes all forms of renewable energy. So solar, wind, hydropower, um, biomass, Waste to energy. I mean, I could, you know, go on geothermal. I knew I was missing at least one other big major one. But um, together, this portfolio serves all local needs, right? You know, not every every community is going to have uh, a wind farm, right? Or have access to offshore wind like we might have here on the East Coast very soon. Um, so it's important to realize that there are many renewable energy technologies for the power sector. But they are breaking through. Now they contribute... Um, more 2022, they contributed more than our nuclear energy fleet. So uh, it continues to be on the rise, and it's very exciting. And I don't see those trends changing. So the final segment I want to get into is talking about accelerated decarbonization and really the importance of, you know, as you talked about, getting things out quickly, right, so that we can use it and we can scale it. The first question I have for you is really about the urgency of accelerating decarbonization to avoid severe climate impacts. 
as you alluded to, I mean, you can look around the world um, over the past year and see what climate has done and, and brought about disasters um, and seeing the impact it has on, on communities all over the world. So could you talk about, you know, the urgency of accelerating decarbonization to avoid these severe climate impacts? Sure. I mean, last year, um, you know, we, tr- we track different metrics in terms of the impacts of climate change. But in the United States, you know, we're looking at data. We wasn't a record-breaking year in terms of disaster. I think it was, unfortunately, the third highest year in terms of a billion dollar number of billion dollar disasters that um, FEMA tracks. I mean, but we, we can look in a lot of ways. We just turn on, um, you know, look at your phone, look at you know, uh, whatever platform you get your news from. You will see something uh, related to the impacts of climate change and how it's hurting people. So we don't have any time to waste. Um, and the good news is we can do things that will help improve our community resilience while decarbonizing. So, you know, one area that we haven't talked about very much, but I think really deserves it, is energy efficiency and energy optimization. Um, you know, we have the opportunity at all levels, household level, business level, um, municipal level, federal level, to modernize our energy systems using much more energy efficient and much more um, digital focused platforms and technologies. So we can, you know, dramatically increase the energy productivity of our actions. And that not only, you know, helps us uh, be more secure when we face a disaster because we're using less energy. It also, in in many cases, can, you know, insulate us literally, like improve the building envelope. So, you know, we we don't need as much energy to heat or cool um, our our buildings or our homes. Um, And, you know, just lowers the demand of energy. So it puts less strain on the electricity grid. And, and we also save money while while we're doing it. And things like energy efficiency related jobs there in every community. Um, so there's no a resource constraint there. It's really just getting more people into the workforce and trained to do this work. So something like energy efficiency, we can do it very quickly. And it just delivers um, energy savings and energy uh, emission, energy and emissions reductions benefits year after year. So I, I think, again, there's a lot of focus in, in my industries as well on technologies that are, you know, proven and moving into the market, you know, anything from sustainable transportation to hydrogen or, you know, in some cases, emerging renewable technologies, energy storage. But, Things like energy efficiency, you know, we know this well. I mean, they have other hurdles in terms of of deploying, but we don't want to lose focus of things that are ready to go, and energy efficiency clearly is. Well, Lisa, I I think we all can say that we've really enjoyed this conversation. And I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the Green Hour, and thank you for the work the Business Council for Sustainable Energy is doing, um, because it's really important work. So thank you so much for coming on, and it was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you so much. I I really enjoyed it, too.